Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Coming up on the payoff. Certain people and relationships just come into your life and you would call it uh, on the other side of addiction and sobriety, God's will. And this guy uh, was dropped into my life. uh, And uh, you want to call God's will. You want to call the universe. You want to call my brother, Kevin, uh, who I met this guy through. You can call whatever you want, but it's a special deal. He's a special guy. He is, uh, you know, one of the lead singers on the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Uh, He is a lifetime or not, I guess, since 19 musical artist, professional uh, recording artist. And uh, yeah, he's sober a year and a little over a year. And he's had some, some, several cracks at it. And, you know, relapse doesn't have to be part of the process, but it is for a lot of us was for me. And it's, uh, it's all, it's all good, man. As long as we, you got one day you have today. Um, that's awesome. And, uh, you know, Nate kind of shares that with us. Uh, he, um, Nate Amore is the guy we're about to hear from. He, he, he talks about, you know, just living in today, not necessarily scratching and clawing to get today, but living in today and enjoying the day. He also talks about a real crazy run with benzos, uh, what it's like to get off of those and, uh, you know, just relationship stuff that we find ourselves in, in and out of addiction, real life stuff. And I think you will find it entertaining informative and inspiring, but somebody who always inspires, he inspires Nate actually. So it's timely that we turn it over, handing the keys to Kevin Souza. Hello, this is Nate. (laughs) Nate dog. What's up? Hey, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? You know, really good. We're uh, we're sitting in California. We're we're a little chilly. We're at 40, 48 degrees. Oh, but really? It's okay. But it's early in the morning there too. What is it? Ten o'clock, right? Yeah, yeah, ten o'clock. Oh, we creeped up to fifty-two. So, but it's it's zero degrees where I'm originally from in Minnesota. So. This is very welcome. And, ben, and and it's recently welcome. I mean, you relocated there from Minneapolis, what, like three months ago, two months ago, two weeks ago? Not even. It's been, it's been one month as of, uh, yeah, it's been one month and three days. Okay. And one thing I want to know, I've gotten to know you a little bit, but I don't know how to pronounce your last name. Is it Amore or Amore? Uh, Amore. That okay. is the way. Just the universal language of love. <laughs> Um, so what's up with you today? You, you, you doing like, like, so did you have to do anything for work? Um, or, uh, or you just like, yeah, I mean, (laughs) work out. What'd you do? It's pretty much just the routine and structure is in place. Um, I'm about to break that because I do have to go back to Minnesota, uh, tonight for a few days, but, but basically I, I, I work, you know, making websites. For a company in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, from seven to three every day, 
I break that up with uh, with some recovery work in the middle of the day, uh, work out after work, hang out at the beach every morning, the pier, read the uh, morning devotionals, and uh, and rinse and repeat. I mean, it's it's a really great uh, life here. It's a great structure. Um, I was so used to the monotony of Minnesota being, you know, stuck you have to bundle up you know zero degrees so you got to bundle up in the winter and then then i would drive to the office and that's a half hour usually in bad weather snow ice and then just huddle up inside with space heaters and and then by the time you leave work it's pitch black at 5 p.m and you're bundled up again and you're driving another half hour to an hour home and so this life and i wake up walk down to the beach, see the ocean, connect with God, come back. Um, you know, and it's just minutes. I'm walking everywhere. I mean, it's just, it's just night and day. man. How much time are you able to devote to your, your, you know, your work as an artist? You're the, so are you considered the lead singer for the Trans-Siberian Orchestra? Uh, no, I would say there's, it's a shared lead role because, okay. We all play. We all play different parts. Uh, we all sing different songs. Um, I, the current tour, the way it's been set up the last few years, I've been playing the uh, the bum, the homeless man who uh, who helps, who kind of witnesses a story of a, a young girl who's ran away from home, and, and and he notices a bartender that takes all the money from the barge or gives it to her so she can get back home to her family. Real touching story. Um, and my job is to sing a song that kind of conveys that story. Um, and then sometimes I'll have a song that's, you know, a little more, uh, you know, rock arena rock that's separate from that. Yeah. Um, and they are, they are arenas that are, that are packed to the brim. Yeah, it's been amazing because, you know, my, my career started with, um, you know, playing bars. I mean, my, my music, my personal Native Moore music career is really just, um, you know, pop rock. It's, you know, John Mayer. Yeah, I was just about to say, it's like, I've listened to your stuff. It's great. And it's John Mayer is the first name that came to mind. Yeah. So it's a little more in that vein, uh, whereas, so it doesn't quite match with the, with this arena rock, um, you know, but kind of heavier vibe but the voice did so you know three four years ago they they saw me singing tennessee whiskey on youtube and then asked me to come and uh come and audition for them because they, they liked the little gravel the little dirt in the place, so you uh, go to the voice uh and we're gonna we're gonna get to the recovery in a second but you go to the voice now what is that like when you show is it one of those things because you were already established as a singer i mean clearly you were I, I can't speak for you, but it seems like you had comfort in your own skin. You were successful. You've been playing for a while, but this is the, this is the shot, right? Yeah. I mean, that was kind of, i really started in like 1999, 2000 with my own personal career going out and then it became bars five times a week and I was just kind of going nowhere. And then in 2012, about 12, 13 years after I started, the voice came in. I was living in Nashville at the time. The voice came into town. And I was like, you know what? I, I I just feel like wheels are spinning. I need I need some sort of break. I can't seem to catch one. So I went to the uh, 
the arena where they held the auditions, waited in line for, I don't know, probably like six hours with, you know, a hundred thousand other people. It felt like, um, I think it was more like 10, 20,000, but, um, that that's happening, you know, like 10, 15, 20 cities around the United States. And then they whittle it down to 120 contestants to get in front of those four chairs. And that process takes, you know, uh, five, six auditions to finally get to the chairs in several months. So, um, it felt like it was a trip, you know, it felt like this is my ticket. I picked the song walking in Memphis by Mark Cohn yeah. and Adam Levine. You know, I, I didn't get any chairs to turn. You know, I always tell people, well, yeah, all four chairs turned, you know, but it was a little late. You know, <laughs> they, they turned with, so, and Levine, you know, he looked at me. Eventually they're like, all going to oh. turn, right? Yeah, yeah. They have to, at some point, yeah. you know, I had uh, some friends and family in the back watching, you know, and, and they were hovering closely over the buttons, uh, Adam and Blake. But uh, basically at the end, you know, it was kind of Adam told me he wanted to hear me really rip, you know, explode. And, and I picked a safe song. I picked a song that I had done, you know, 20 years that just didn't have all the vocal shops, you know, like a Tennessee whiskey with all that dirt in it, you know. But, yeah. you know, live and learn, right? Yeah, well, live and learn, and you're doing uh, you're doing pretty damn well now. I want to. By the way, were you sober during that audition? Like, and I don't mean sober at that time. If you weren't, please tell me. But I mean, overall, were you sober at that phase in your life? Because I know you. You know, part of your story is, hey man, relapse or checking out of the program, whatever you want to call it. Unfortunately, it's part of the process, and unfortunately, a lot of us don't make it back. You did. Yeah, I think. I look at my, I've got a nice little journal with a, with a uh, relapse kind of timeline. And I, and I kept that and I wrote that because I wanted to see the common thread, which was always, well, when I look back at it now, it's always my will kind of takes back over and uh, I'm going to try things my way. And, and it doesn't mean that I, I was going to go drink right away. It's just, I don't think I need that. I don't think I need the meetings or the, you know, the sponsor, you know, um, they're cool, but. Yeah, and then eventually I end up drinking again, very innocently. Um, but at that time on The Voice, I was, I was actually, the, I went to treatment in 06. And by the time I got to The Voice in 2012, I'd been sober about six years um, uh, when I got there. So I had some good recovery in me. Um, but it was right after that, a couple months after The Voice, where I, where I didn't get the chair to turn. I didn't make the team. I kind of went into self-pity mode. I hadn't been to meetings in so long. How long, how long had you stopped? Oh God, probably a year and a half. Oh, okay. Wow. Of no meetings, no sponsor. And it, it turns into, you know, self will run riot. And, and for a while it was fine until it's not. And then it's, uh, and then I left to my own devices. Um, I ended up ending a relationship a couple months after that voice didn't work. And that combination of no program and no, work individually just it was easy to just crack a crack a beer and uh and then i was back for two three months do you remember what went through your mind nate before you 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 cracked that beer or you you took whatever what 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 were the thoughts that went through your mind uh it's it's always been in the it's always been the uh efforts you know i won't say the word but 
you know what I mean? Where it's, um, I know exactly what just, you mean. Yeah. You push everyone away far enough, long enough where the efforts are easier. It's just like, well, well, screw it. I might as well. I mean, that was the, that feeling of, uh, escape worked for me before. Maybe it'll work this time. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Let me try one more time. You know, it's gotta, my friends can do it. Yeah. So, uh, it's just, it's silly. You know, I laugh at it now because, um, well, because you're yeah, sober uh, more six, than a year. Right. And, and I've had six of those times and the theme has always been the same. It's like, how many times will you say this time will be different? How many times have you heard that from everyone else in recovery? So it's like, you know, uh, God willing, you know, today, today is, is one day that I've got sober and that's kind of where I'm really trying to focus on. Not yeah. counting days anymore. Yeah. Well, and, and so in the spirit of honesty, your sponsor is Kevin S a guy who I know very well. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's so, it's so crazy because Kevin, you know, my, my brother, uh, he meets you on, on, I guess, leading up to the tour for the trans Siberian orchestra, you guys click. And I mean, really click. And then we're off to the races and I'm talking to him. I don't know. Maybe it was a little before Christmas and he was just t- talking to me about, you know, this, this, this great duty man and this guy's sober too. And, uh, and man, that thread of magic, uh, is, is, is coming, comes through today and talking to you, you know, that it's so weird, that bond it, it's, it's a God thing, um, or it's whatever somebody wants to call it, but it's a, it's a beautiful situation that, you know, you meet my brother, I meet you when I'm out there in California with my other brother, Mike, and now here you and I are talking and hopefully, you know, helping some people through this. Yeah, I, I, I liken it to the, the first meeting, you know, first several meetings I went to, I heard it at some point, it was said, you know, you need to get a sponsor. And then after that, it was, well, find someone that has what you want, right? And so it was that. It was exactly that. I was sitting down at lunch and someone had mentioned Kevin was a cool dude. And so I looked at him. I was like, that looks like a cool dude. And so I sat down, introduced myself and, and you get to talking and you're like, wow, this, yeah, this guy's a good hang. And then you find out similarities. The next thing you know, um, you know, you it was just easy, you know? And I think that's, you know, like, like you say, you call it God, wherever you want. But for, for me, you know, God definitely put us together and, and all of that lined up. You know, I'd always wanted to get uh, out of Minnesota, especially in the winters. And I'd always wanted to be in California. Well, all the things lined up, you know, based on, on last year in, in the, in me giving up my will and just trying to follow God's will for my own. Yeah. And, and that's exactly how it seems like things are unfolding for you. If my brother is, he's a lot of things. And, and one of the things he has always been, dude, is cool. Uh, I, 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 I'm not cool. Uh, my brother, Michael, uh, <laughs> the jury's out on that, but I, I would say, meh. but Kevin has always uh, just been a cool dude. Uh, and uh, that's, that's cool to hear, hear you say that. So I want to go back, Nate. When was your first, the first time you remember, you know, taking alcohol on or drugs? Yeah, well, I mean, drugs were never a thing. My my mom always told me that I would die if I ever tried drugs, and uh, I, I don't know if that was the right thing to say to a young child, but it did scare me. So, I think the closest I got was 
take I saw cocaine in, in the back of a show once and I put my I did the detective thing where I licked my finger, touched the coke, <laughs> put it under my lip and I was like, Why do they do that? Oh, my lip turned numb. I was like, I get it now. Yeah. And that was my experience with, with any hard drug was just, you know, I never tried it, but I had to try the detective trick. But as far as booze, I mean booze was my thing, you know, that was and it just my parents didn't drink. You know, I was adopted, so I didn't I didn't know my biological parents, but my adopted parents that I grew up with, they, they didn't really drink much. My my mom said, you know, before she married my dad that he had to quit drinking or she wasn't going to marry him. And so I saw him once in a while have maybe a couple too many, but it was very rare. She was always raining him in. Um, so I just remember one time for, for no reason at all, I was uncomfortable. I was always uncomfortable. I felt like I lacked an identity. I did, the adoption thing was confusing. I didn't know who I was. And one morning at like 16 years old is the first time I remember. I, I just, I, I don't know why, but I grabbed the vodka bottle and I just slammed it before my ride came at like 7 a.m. Before school. school. Yeah. Okay. And, and I remember just like, wow, this this feeling of like, such ease and comfort, you know, on the way to school. It, it lasted for a long time, this euphoria, you know, this one to two hours. And, and it was in my second period that this friend of mine, Mark, um, in, in class was like, man, you reek. What is that? <laughs> and I was like, oh, you know, and I told him, I didn't really think, it, it didn't know much about alcohol. It didn't know anything about alcoholism. I mean, my parents had that stuff in the cupboard probably for 20 years. And, and I just told him, I was like, well, I drank the, the vodka that was in my mom's cabinet. I don't know. I just slammed it. I don't know why. And he's like, dude, that's pretty messed up, man. And you know, I found out later it, he, his dad was in recovery. So for him, he kind of knew yeah. for me, it was just, it was just ease, you know, and I didn't do it again for, I don't know, probably six months a year. I, mean, I, didn't, I didn't do it every day at that point. I just, kind of knew there was a solution, you know, if I did need it, you know. What were your interests like in, in high school? Were you always into music or you're growing up, I guess, outside of Minneapolis, right? Is that right? Yeah. At that, at that point, it was like in a suburb of uh, St. Paul. And, okay. Because I, I grew up uh, in Shoreview, it's called, and I was going to, uh, we moved from Pequot Lakes, which is up north in Minnesota, very small town. How and old were you when we you moved? moved? I was about 10 or 11 and I had a really hard time fitting in. Um, you know, we, we wore the same Wranglers, you know, three, four days in a row in a small town. Yeah. You get to the big city and the kids are like, you're not wearing Jabos or whatever. <laughs> you're pegging your pants or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, <laughs> I was just, you know, it, I, I wouldn't say bullied, but I was, cause I was pretty big. So I don't think the, the kids really wanted to try to beat me up, but they did, you know, words were pretty hurtful and it was, yeah, I was a nerd. I was basically a total nerd until 11th grade in high school. So from the time we moved, uh, the small town, I was popular and cool. We get to the big town at 10, 11 years old. I'm a nerd all the way till 16, 17. And what changed was, you know, I, my mom had brought home this, um, karaoke little box thing and, she loved, she wanted to, she liked singing. She was, she wasn't great at it. That's for sure. But, um, she would leave, she left it in the basement and I just, one day I went over and I, I looked at 
what tapes there were. There was an Elvis tape there. And so I just started kind of mimicking what I heard. And, and I remember I was like, yeah, you know what? I was like, uh, as a snow flies. I started singing in the ghetto and I was like, I sound pretty similar. And then there's this talent show coming up at school. I was like, you know what? Um, I don't know where I got the cojones to do it, but I was like, let's just enter it. So I entered it. I sang in the ghetto. I did the sideburns, the whole Elvis jump. Give us a little in the ghetto right now. Uh, On a cold and gray Chicago morn, and another little baby child is born. Yeah, maybe I'm not quite there. (laughs) That's pretty damn good. uh, (laughs) So, and you know, I had the lip snarl and the, the, the whole thing. I worked it up. Was I that it now? There. And now, how intoxicating was that for you? Well, and that's a great word for it because, you know, years later and, and lots of therapy and things, I found that, you know, I was looking for that acceptance. And that bottle a few times here and there gave me the comfort. But when I got on that stage, a thousand peers, um, that was acceptance that I hadn't felt before. You know, I, I didn't feel real accepted at home. And, but when on that stage, the applause, the performing, it was like, whoa, this is it. So at 17, I'm like, now I got to, I won first place on that talent show. And I was like, okay, suddenly I wasn't a nerd. Everyone's calling me Elvis. They want to hang out with me. (laughs) Okay, this is it. Um, So I followed that, you know, I followed, I graduated high school, went right to college at the university of Minnesota and Instead of going to classes, I was booking gigs singing Elvis. Um, yeah. Oh, so you were almost like an Elvis impersonator for a little bit? For a little bit. So, <laughs> so a friend of mine, um, Brian, his name G.B. Layton is his band name, and he, uh, big, big deal in the Twin Cities, um, real established singer, songwriter, musician. He came to one of my shows, and I was 19 at the time. He was 20-something. And he came up to me after, and he was real honest. He said, bro, you either got to move to Vegas to do make this thing work, or you got to write your own material. I mean, you're singing Elvis songs, dude. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I didn't know. Yeah. You know? And so then I just, I, I started writing my own songs, but then, and then alcohol started coming in uh, right, right after that. Did that and enhance that, that the was, creativity leading to the songwriting, or did it? kind of debilitate it long-term. Nah. Nah, I hear people say that. That's such BS. Like, no, it, it made everything worse. You know, you think it, you think it makes things better, but you know, people talk about that with psychedelics, marijuana, all the other things. It's like, I, I tried marijuana a few times and I felt really euphoric a couple of times on it and thought, Ooh, I'm writing amazing. But now the best, the best material for me that I've ever written has been completely sober. And that's, I mean, that's for me how it works. So I, I don't buy into that. Oh, it was amazing when it was wasted. Or, yeah. It made, it made me lazy and it made, if anything, it, it pretty much stalled my career for years until that voice thing happened. What's it like when you your, know, your office space is basically a bar uh, or, or an environment where, you know, drinking is, is promoted and plentiful? Jeez. Well, see, and that's where, you know, it's about 2002 and I'm, I meet my ex-wife now at a bar, you know, and she, she's a model and she's out in the crowd. And it, it's just that whole, that rock and roll lifestyle thing where it's just, 
as many drinks as you want. It's all free. You're also getting paid every night. Uh, then there's a model out there. She likes you. Next thing you know, you're pregnant. Next thing you know, you got to do the right thing, get married. And whoa, like, yeah. you know, just a whirlwind. Right? Yeah. You're not even thinking. It's just, this is life now. And she, of course, when she was pregnant, stopped drinking, but I didn't. So and you I guys were, were drinking a lot together. It was a party, yeah. I mean, I, I went to Hawaii to, um, to propose, and I ended up, like, I don't know how much alcohol was involved, but, like, I used it to get comfortable, and I couldn't just a- ask her to marry me. You know, I, I don't think I even knew what marriage really meant at that time or what it even was. I mean, I was 20-some years old. Um, so it... <laughs> It's one of those things where we look back at it now, you know, she's remarried happily with two, two other children and, and she's a great mom and we've got two beautiful kids together now that are 17 and 18 years old. But back then it was a, for me, it was a crisis. You know, I, being a father, it scared the, the hell out of me. And I, um, it scared me sober to get sober the first time. Did she I push? Did she push you at all? Was there any like consequence or jumping off point? Yeah, there was this. Uh, I call. He's still my uncle. I call him. You know, uncle in law. He's been sober now. I don't know, twenty some years still. Uh, back at that point, he was you know five years in, and so he'd see me at like family functions and be like, "Hey, man, real." You know, they talk about suggesting the, you know, the way our way, you know, to people and not shoving it down throat. So he was a great example of someone that was just like, you know, if you need help, give me a call. Here's my number. You know, cause he noticed my behavior, you know, uh, what, even when I wasn't drinking, just like kind of the white knuckling. And I think he saw that I, I needed something more. So I went to a meeting with him first and, um, but I, at that point I didn't, alcohol wasn't my problem is what I said. Cause I had a rattle in my pocket at that point. I was, you know, I said I never did drugs. Well, that that was illegal drugs. I was hooked at that point on benzo. Oh, okay. Really bad. Um, and I, but I didn't think anything of it. You know, the rattle in my pocket was a prescription. You know, the doctor gave it to me because I had anxiety because I was drinking you twenty know, some drinks a day. Suddenly, <laughs> I've got anxiety. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Go figure. Yeah. <laughs> And, and my, our, our wonderful system, our modern medicine was like, hey, you know, you're shaking, you, you're nervous here, have some Ativan. Okay. And then it was just five years of, you know, I didn't drink much. I'd go here and there to AA to appease, you know, my wife at the time and, and family members. But I had lots of Klonopin, Xanax, Ativan all day, every day. When you look back until on that, you, until when? 2006, I, I, I was like near death and like, I'm not an alcoholic. I just have a problem with these benzos is what I would say, you know? Yeah. But the problem got out of hand. Yeah. And that was before I, the realization for me that it's all the same. I mean, I, given the chance with me and my will in the driver's seat of life, I will abuse everything. Yeah. Um, I, 
I think I ate six brownies before we talked uh, today. So I'm still. <laughs> you made brownies for the Super Bowl party. If they're the same brownies, they're damn good brownies. So I, I think I had about four or five of them among, split amongst like eight or nine people. Yeah, they are the same. And there was this mentality, you know, I got a flight today at 4 p.m. Well, I don't want to throw the brownies out. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was that yeah. same thing with the alcohol. Like, you don't want to leave a half glass of wine on the table. Yeah. What a waste. What what is uh, I, I wanted to ask you though what is so people that don't know <clears throat> you know you're taking benzos every day for six years it's almost like a I mean and I have a great memory but I look back on some of those times that that's a real hazy um, recollection for me yeah I mean it's it was explained to me in treatment from the doctor that you know here's what you did basically you know. The benzo, benzodiazepines work on the same neural pathways as the alcohol did. So for my alcoholic brain, this was just a different delivery system for the same effect, which is comfort. E, I'm a comfort addict. I needed to be comfortable at all times. Don't feel the pain. Don't feel discomfort to pop the pill, just like taking a shot, you know. Mm -hmm. But it's undetectable. You know, but the whole time it's like. Until you take too many. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. And it's just, and it's just killing. It's just slowly destroying your brain, you know, to the point where when you, when I was in treatment, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the clock at one point, the second hand was going backwards and I'm like, literally it was moving to the left. And you this know, is sober. Yeah. After all I that mean, my nonsense. Mind, my mind was gone. I mean, I spent 21 days in that treatment center and when I got out, I was not in good shape. I mean, I, I was a nervous wreck. I couldn't work. Uh, I couldn't get off the couch. I mean, it, they put me on um, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, you know, the Prozacs, the Zoloft. Um, you know, I was for 10 years, I was like a little lab rat from tw 2006 to 2016, just bouncing around, um, you know, on different meds. And, and then that lie came in. Well, it was I was only really addicted to benzos. I mean, I went to treatment for benzos. I could still drink. Maybe that'll help me feel normal. You know, that lie. I mean, it's just crazy. You would talk about insanity. I mean, the the fact that my brain could say to myself, like, oh, you forgot about the fact that you drank those 20, 30 drinks a day, got really anxious to get on the benzo. Yeah. You know, how do you forget that part? Well, because you want, you know, the addict wants it's, uh, it's fixed, you know? Because so. you want to forget. And it's amazing because, and that's where it kind of, not kind of, it is an overwhelming disease obsession. Uh, it's, you really, it's a subconscious. You don't realize what you're doing to your mind as far as convincing yourself and the rationalization. No, you have no, I mean, it, it, it's amazing the, um, the deals you make with yourself, you know? And with and with God, you know, because my faith was still yeah. You got it. You have very strong faith, and you know that's a big part of your program, a big part of who you are. Yeah, and for all, you know, I, I said this at a meeting the other day. I was like, some of that was kind of a problem too, because I would say to myself, "Well, my my God is bigger than I, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me." I'd use verses and scriptures to to do this, but the realization I found was that, well, God, you know, isn't enough you know he's the most important for me 
But that alone, I mean, I always say my, my higher power, you know, he had 12 homeboys with him at all times. Like he, he, yeah. he went away to be alone to pray once in a while, but like, that was kind of a lesson I just missed out on. I, I just chose not to listen to. I, I need community. I need a group of people that are like-minded around me and God with, with that to complete the, to complete it. And once I go away from that, I can get right back to that journal entry with the relapses and go, Oh, it's the same common thread. You were alone thinking that you could manage uh, life on its own. It always ends with isolation though, dude. Like when you, for me at the end of my drinking and drug usage, man, it was just me. It was me. And I tell people when my cell phone rang, young Jeezy played and my parents were playing my cell phone bell. I mean, it was, a, it was, a, I'm in my young 30, I'm in my early thirties, not young at all. And, uh, you know, I don't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of. And I got no clue as the, I have no perception on reality. I think my life is great. I think if I can get $10 to get down to the bar, take a Benzo, take some speed and drink $25, 25-cent $25 drafts. Like if I can keep this up, my life, for the rest of my life, I'm golden. Uh, and, and, and I believed it, dude, you know, it's crazy, man. It's insane. I, I, one thing I want to ask you just as kind of, since you, I think what makes people in recovery experts is experience and you've got, um, you know, your doctorate in benzos. What do you tell people or what would you tell someone that asks? Cause I've worked with guys that come into recovery off benzos and they are like my one buddy. He always, everything was brutal. He must have said the word brutal a million times in, like, <laughs> in the first month I knew him because that's what that stuff does to you. Like, what would you tell someone who says, man, I, I can't do it, Nate. Like, I, I can't get off this shit. It's not worth it. I tried before, and after that 21 days, I still couldn't see straight. God, well, the, I would say the storm will pass, but it's a, it's a longer storm than usual, and and it's going to be different for everyone, but, but it will pass. I mean, and that was the thing I had to keep telling myself, you know, you get kind of, sometimes you get into the eye of the hurricane and things would feel calm and okay for a while. And then you're like, Oh, I guess I'm not done. Storm would start again. Yeah. Anxiety. I couldn't see straight. It felt like everything was felt foggy and just, I mean, it damages your brain to, you know, so it takes the brain they always talk about like, you know, sometimes it takes, you know, maybe half the time that you were using to, to correct the brain on pencils. So, so then it would take it, you know, it felt like right math that it was about two and a half, three years till I really felt quote unquote, you know, normal. Um, and, and not having any more of the weird, it, it, it happened suddenly out of the blue. I was like, I walked outside one day and I was like, wow, I could see all the colors again. Like, the greens were green. The blues were blue. There was no haze. There was no fog. And I just kind of, I almost went down to my knees and just gratitude to God saying, thanks for taking this from me. Cause this was a long time. I get emotional thinking about that because I haven't had a benzodiazepine since 2006. And there were times when, when I know that that's where it's going again. When I, when I had the other relapses in there, the six times, every time there was a moment of hangover or terrible feeling from drinking where I was like, God, maybe I should just get a Xanax. Mm -hmm. It was going back. It was almost there every time. And that's, 
scared me enough to go, no, I know, <laughs> I know what I need to do. And, uh, I need to go do that. What so was I would the, just say to those people, hang on, man. hang, hang on. in there. Yeah. Um, but I like what you said though. I mean, sometimes it's different for everybody and you know, this storm can take a little while to pass, but to your story, when you, you know, hit your knees is it does pass and it's way better when it passes, you know, better than you could ever imagine at the time when you're going through it. You know, it's, I always equate it to this cause you, you work out, you run. It's so one of those things where yeah. you see a guy, if you ever see a guy who's running in the pouring rain, right? If you're like driving by him in your warm car and it's 40 degrees and a guy's running, it's like, that's like the worst thing to run in, in my opinion. And it looks impossible. And you're like, I can't believe that maniac is doing that right now. But then you go on a run on a, the start of the run is, is nice and sunny and warm. And then that weather turns and it's like, um, and then you're the guy in the middle of the storm, but you're still going forward. And then the next thing you know, you're either back at home or the clouds break and the sun's out again. It's like, we always think, man, I can't do that. But the next thing you know, you're doing it. And, and then you're, and, yeah. and you're through it. I mean, that's a lot easier than <laughs> get off Benzos, right? Running in the rain. But I think you see my point. Like it's, it's, and that's the cool thing, man. Like you're able to share that. And hopefully somebody listening, because I, I know that that's a juggernaut, man. People, people getting off benzos, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a long road. But, I mean, man, to hear that you, you know, and that's how bad it was, right? Which, of all the relapses, you still were like, no, man, I, I can't. I can't. Yeah. I, I can't. But, you, but eventually, I mean, it's not, it's not off the table, right? We're addicts. It will go there. Yeah. No, no question. So, it will go there. And. When, when you got back from, from rehab, when you get done those 21 days, are you going to meetings or are you just like benzos are my problem and, and you're kind of white knuckling the whole deal? Well, I think I ran into this, like, uh, another fight with God, God of my understanding recovery groups that were at that time in 2006, there was this boom of, uh, what's called celebrate recovery, sure. which is. Yeah, which is basically a Christ-centered recovery program, and and it and it started fine, you know, the group I was in, but eventually it always it always seems that the traditions of the program of AA are, are put in place so that personalities don't get involved and, and mess things up, and and so. It, it, things just changed too much in that program. And I kind of went with those changes. Like, again, there was this doctrine of, you know, uh, God can, can be enough really that wasn't outright taught, but I took it to mean that I don't really need the group then if, you know, all I need is God, you know, it just, yeah. it just it, it, they turned the 12 steps into eight steps and biblical principles that, are awesome, but it's cool. But I don't think that for me, I had to understand that for me and I can't, you know, I don't want to put it down. It works. Yeah, I know you're trying not to, and 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 I get it. (laughs) But for me personally, I found out through that process and then a relapse, you know, that, that happened in 2012 because of, you know, not having a program because it basically left celebrate recovery to be, you know, on my own. Yeah. And, and I went to a few AA meetings, but then I was like, well, I don't like this because 
it doesn't have what that had. And it just it became this comparing game and ego, you know, my ego got involved. And so AA is for me, you know, and I, and I'm not out promoting it because again, the traditions are in place for a reason. I, I'm not going to be on Instagram going, Hey, I'm going to this AA yeah. meeting at this time because it's dope and it's awesome. And, you know, it's like, no, I, that's anonymity is, you know, very important. So I'm like, I ain't going to tell anyone where I'm going, what meetings I'm going to and, and not and what I'm learning. It's just, it has to be that way. It's yeah. It just works. It, and it keeps my head out of it. If I get involved in any decisions whatsoever, it's just not a good thing. Well, it's like on either side of the coin, there's people who are, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm not into God at all. And, and they're the opposite, right? And then they can compare themselves out. And then there's people who, Hey, I'm really into God. Let me, let me do celebrate recovery. And then it's like, either way you'll, you, from what I've experienced, cause I've been on both sides, you, you lose when you're on the debate squad. It's like, I, I'm just dumb enough uh, to get this thing right. It's don't overthink it. Get your ass in a meeting, sit down and just be there. Just be. And that's all. And just be. I mean, I need to do that more often nowadays. And then just let it happen to you. But you've got to show up. And if you're, and if you say you can't make friends, well, just stand still after the prayer, after a meeting, and just, yeah. just, just yeah. count to sixty. And somebody will end up talking to you. Count to thirty if you feel sixty's weird. It probably is too long. But you get my point. <laughs> I've done it before. I literally have stood there. I haven't counted, but I've just been like, all right, just let me stand here. And somebody ends up talking to you, and then maybe. If it's not that time, the next time you're the last person to leave the meeting and you just feel because it's that tribal element that really has worked for me uh, that, that I'm just so, so drawn to. So back to you, you get you, you uh, take me through to like 2016, like what's happening because you're not you, you, did you not drink for seven years, right? Uh, six. It was six, and then it was the relationship ending in 2012, along with the voice not. No, this is no. This where, is a new. This is a new relationship, right? Yeah, it was the first relationship after my divorce. Okay. From uh, my ex uh, ex wife one. Uh, <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> Frank got the scorecard at home. Yeah, yeah. So uh, don't worry, Nate. I couldn't so even. I, get, I, I was so <laughs> fucked up. I couldn't even get anybody to marry me. So, so right, back to you. Yeah, yeah. dude. It, it, it. I I was dishonest. You know what, what happens is the besides just white knuckling it. You know the thing that we talk about is you know the things that made you not a great person while you were drinking come back into play. The character defense. So suddenly, you know, I I thought it was okay to tell the girl that I met, um, you know, that I was divorced when the divorce wasn't final. It was just a little white lie. It was going to be final eventually. I mean, and I held on to that and I asked this girl to marry me when I wasn't even divorced yet. I mean, I mean, that's, that's insanity. You know, that that's not being honest. It's, it, it, you know, so that, that by the way, that happens more than you think, but it is dishonest and it is, you right. know, we, we, we know what's right and wrong. Yeah, and I knew right away. I knew the moment it came out of my mouth that I was like, ah, I should correct that real quick. Well, I didn't, you know, and and I and I can't say that it's just simply because I didn't have a program, but I think now rigorous honesty is a huge thing in my life. So, uh, you know, fast forward, you know, she finds out I'm not divorced, and 
obviously is extremely hurt. It broke the trust. It broke the relationship. And I just went right to the. And that right never, you really, this is because you've told me the story before. Um, she never recovered from that. And that was, and that's a, a pretty big consequence. Uh, is somebody that yeah. you love, you tell what you consider or tell yourself as a white lie, and then they are just so shattered by it, and trust is broken, and then that's a wrap. And um, part of me is like, good for her, um, because yeah. you, don't, you don't see it that often, right? Uh, but I was thinking about when you were telling me that when we were at lunch last week, I was like, what? probably a real esteemable person to be like, I just can't, you know? I was, you know, looking back, I'm like, wow, good for her, because, yeah, it she tried, you know, to forgive. And you know, I was, you know, for me being the, um, you know, I'm back to drinking again. It's going to be different this time. So I'm telling her these things, you know, like mm-hmm. she, she knows, I think, you know, so it's like, I'm saying things are going to be different. Please forgive me. Give me another chance. And it's like, no, good for her. She held her guns and was just like, you know, it's just not, so I moved back to, I'm in Nashville at that time, you know, I moved back. What's going to, on with uh, the music career, by the way? Like, you know, we, we talked a little bit about the voice and, and the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, what you're doing now, but like, as far as being a recording artist, are you flirting with record deals? Are you having success there? Are you making money? You're clearly, you're making money. You're making a living and you're recording. Yeah. So we had, you know, after the voice, I had the, the relapse I had there after the six years of sobriety and after the breakup was, was about a four or five month uh, using experience. And I think in order to get her back, I was like, well, I'll go back to, I don't think again, I don't know that that second t- attempt at recovery was really for me, but whatever. I was in that program. And, and then I was at the church in Nashville too at that time. Um, and then I was serving there. I was, uh, you know, leading worship, singing songs on the weekend and, digging into my faith and staying sober and actually going to meetings. But then the divorce being final, the kids, you know, they had moved back to Minnesota with my ex. Um, And so I found myself in Nashville going every other week, driving to Minnesota and back and 13 hours one way or, or I'm flying and it's just expensive and and so much work that I, I had to finally say to myself, you know, what's better? I've got this great community in Nashville with, and I'm, I'm writing songs with these people, blah, blah, blah. But is that more important than a relationship with my kids when they're, you know, four and six years old and being a father to them now? And I was like, yeah, that was an easy answer. So I moved back yeah. to Minnesota in 2013. And then I, I found a church up in uh, the Twin Cities and, And I just kind of threw myself into, I said, forget the music, forget my career. I'm just going to, you know, be a worship leader at this church, sing songs on Sundays, raise my kids. Um, And so I did that. Um, But it kind of, you know, it kind of, um, I kind of went, you know, like we do. You know, I went too far to that side. I Mm -hmm. went... I yeah. went way into the, the started getting more like religious instead of uh, the way I, I, I love it now where it's just, I have a relationship with God and, and um, it's different back then. It was like kind of a man-made thing where 
it became, you know, I met this girl at the church. My mom would say things to me like, ah, oh, you're going to meet a really nice girl at the church. Um, I took her to mean that, well, then that means I'm only going to meet a girl at the church. So I yeah. started looking really. And I met the girl and we got engaged, I don't know, four five months into dating and then And you, you meet her singing at the months. church, right? You're singing together. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Is there pressure Both to keep that sober. type of relationship together? Big time. You know, the staff is saying things like, uh, you can't do certain things together until you're married. Yeah. There were some rules and things, you know, that make your job, your career, um, in jeopardy if you do. So it's like, okay, it did feel, there was, there was pressure that you know, I put on myself. Um, that was not the way that I yeah, see things now. So, so we ended up getting married. And, and those and churches both, you're singing at, and this is cause, cause I don't know, there's some do re me in that. Like you're, 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 you're making money. You, you, is that a full-time job? Yeah, exactly. I'm making full-time uh, career money, yeah. doing great, singing songs. With singing the, three, with the woman you love, week. yeah, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, and then, you know, and we're both sober, and we we actually go to uh, a Friday night meeting together, and, but it was within a couple months of marriage that, She's decided I'm going to go back to puffing a little bit. And, and so two months after that, I decide, well, then I'm going to just drink like a gentleman. Then. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. And then I start using scripture, you know, Jesus turned water into wine, <laughs> so whatever it takes. Drank. Yeah. I mean, it was, and then it was off and then I was off again and we were, she, you know, that drove her into the arms of her ex. And, you know, I, I can take responsibility for my part in that. It's not all on her. And we ended that marriage really quick. Um, How long were you married for? I think it was literally a year, just over a year. Um, and, and it was, (laughs) it was difficult, but it was like, okay, how many, how many lessons now have I learned, you know, not only recovery, but just life. I can relate, dude. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, and again, so she's remarried now has a baby happy. I mean, I'm happy for her and, and really grateful for that relationship. But she, she gets back with her ex and you know, whether you had a role in that or not, I mean, you, you say you did, you did, but and did that, how, how did that affect you and your drinking? I asked cause I know it probably would have affected me. Uh, oh yeah. I used it for sure. I, I, I used it to, you know, medicate further. You know, I was like, well, I, you know, I'm not good enough then that it all the self pity, you know, um, which is really selfish, right? I heard that recently, like this yeah. self pity is like one of the most selfish things you can do. Cause all you're doing is thinking about yourself and you're certainly not thinking about anybody else and, or helping anybody else. Yeah, dude. I mean, and that was, I started finally going to, uh, added therapy to my regimen back then. And my therapist was really good in letting me know it was the first time I heard that I'm a comfort addict, a selfish comfort addict. And I, I needed, 
to make sure that I stayed tethered daily to my higher power and then to the group. You know, you can't, you can't do one without the other. And that was the first time, you know, back, that was 2016. That's when things are finally starting to make sense. Um, you know, and then that's when I got the call from Trans-Siberian. Like, How does that uh, whole thing come together? Because that's a huge show. I mean, that's a huge deal. Uh, people, it's, it's one of those things that time of year, every year for about, what, three months, four months. It just, it's everywhere, you know? Yeah, I mean, and I, of course, I'd heard of it. I, I'm, I'm, I, Chipotle is one of my favorite, you know, foods, I have to admit. And so I was sitting with my kids outside in the summer in Minnesota of 2016. No, I was 2017 summer 2017 I get a call because uh, I'd been you know divorced 2016 now I'm starting really pushing and in, hard into recovery and finding myself no relationship just let's just do life on uh, life's terms program myself God group uh, and kids pour into the kids so so then I figure well this makes sense Trans-Siberian calls me I'm out in the patio at Chipotle and, um, and she, she, you know, she says to me the music director she says yeah, have you heard of us? I was like, well, yeah, of course. He's like, well, we heard, I heard your video, you know, covering Tennessee whiskey and you've got kind of the, what we're looking for, uh, vocal style. So would you be willing to come and audition? So, I mean, I hung up the phone and I was like, oh, wow. You know, here I am. I'm 40 years old. I've been trying to quote unquote, make it whatever that is yeah. in the music business, you know, cause Cause make it for me at that karaoke machine and at that talent show was to be as big as Elvis. I mean, that was the goal. Yeah. I'm going to go, Yeah, yeah. I'm going to do that. I watched all his documentaries. Like that's what I'm going to do. Well, you know, fast forward 2017, I'm 40 and I'm, um, and I'm like, wow, you know, is this finally, you know, cause like I said earlier, I feel like I stunted my own, career and I don't I don't say that to be like poor me at all I just that's what addiction does it robs it steals it takes it alcohol is a dissolvent it dissolves things yeah and And, and that's what people do that's what talented people do dude that's why the people that succeed are the ones right I mean like they stay the course most of the time they're consistent um we take a lot of times hopefully temporarily we just take ourselves out like you said, we dissolve ourselves. That's what people do. You can be in line next to somebody and they'll just blow themselves up. And you're like, okay, <laughs> if I just stand here, I'm going to, Jay Leno had a great, uh, it was back in the yeah. day when he was a stand, he was a stand up, and he was outside a club in Boston and it was an open mic night and the line was long. It was the comedy boom and he's in line and it's cold outside and two people get out of line and he moves up two spots and he thinks to himself, so you mean if I just stand here and don't go anywhere? Instead, you know what I mean? Like I, I will continue to move forward and alcoholics. We don't do that, dude. (laughs) We're moving all over the place and we're just literally Uh napalm in situations like you, an extremely talented guy, uh, you talk about. So that's real. That, that dissolving is real. So, so go ahead. So now you're 40 years old and you're thinking, man, this is it. Yeah. I'm thinking, you know, if this, there was the dream of Elvis was like seeing him in documentaries was always on a stage in front of thousands of people in arenas and in stadiums, you know? And so that was really the dream. I had to define it. 
it was so loose to say, oh, I'm going to be like Elvis. It's like, well, what does that even mean? Well, so when I dissected what my dream really was, it was to sing in front of massive amounts of people, just like I did at 17 in front of a thousand, but on a bigger platform. And so I was like, wow, you know, so this is kind of an answer to, yeah, you know, prayer and the, the dream fulfilled. Now, did I want it to be my own material, my own song? Sure. But I'm not done you know, with that dream either. So, no way. You got so plenty I, of tricks left up your sleeve. Yeah. So when I'm sitting there, you know, I go down to Tampa at their studios and I audition and things click. You know, I find out um, I'm going out 2018 to the 2019. I had to wait one season um, to get on. But when I got on, you know, three years ago, I, uh, I had a blast. Uh, now, granted, I was in a what I will say was kind of the worst and last um, terrible relationship, toxic relationship and choice that I made yeah. to be in at that time. Uh-huh. So there was this dichotomy of like, I'm doing the most incredible thing in my life, my career that, you know, God's blessed me beyond measure with this opportunity. And then at home, I've got, you know, someone that is just horrible for me that I, I need to figure that out. <laughs> so yeah. I was like, <laughs> you're torn. quite yeah. there, you know? And, and I think that's the thing. It's like, it, you, I always thought like, I'm going to arrive, you know? It's like, no, but, but never, you know, I'm staring at the ocean right now and palm trees are swaying and it's, it's great. But, but I still struggle at times. Everyone does. So it's like, you're never going to arrive. It's just a daily trip. And it's like that yeah. old guy, if you ever seen the movie Parenthood, he's like, you know, he's talking to, I think it's a grandfather and he's talking to his grandson or his son and he's like, you never like cross the gold line. You never spike it. It's never over. You know, it's it's Jason Robards. It's his character and it's so true um, because you hear it from people like that, real people like that. And and I'm hearing it from you. Like, And that's the beauty of of the program is realizing that like all we have is today. Like you mentioned it, like that's all we have. I have not been doing a good job about that recently. Just like, just live in the now and enjoy it. You know, I, I you know, what's crazy, you know, Nate and I hung out with my brother, Michael, my brother, Kevin, um, Nate, and my brother, Michael and I had lunch. Nate and I had a meeting out there and, uh, it was just a great time. My brothers and I being together, it was magical. And, uh, you know, Patty, my, Kevin's wife and, and I, like since I, I got back and I was like, I was like yearning for those times. Now I certainly enjoyed them in the moment, but I had gratitude. Like, man, I, that was just special. Um, it was just really special. And, uh, it makes me, makes me want to live more in moments and in moments like that. And to just be there, you know, uh, and and honestly, uh, addicts, people can relate to this. You can relate to this, Nate. Maybe next time you don't go back for the, this is me. You don't go back for the ninth brownie. You know what I mean? Like you just sit still and you, and you listen to other, stop chasing shit, dude. Just sit still and, 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 uh, and hold your place and let it flow over you. Uh, so you go to the, so you're in the orchestra now. When is the last, any, like, were you ever drunk, like in situ, in circumstances around there? Were you, were you drinking around that time? No. So what, what happened when I go back to that toxic relationship, I had, I had been doing the work in uh post second divorce in 2017. I'm, I'm doing the work. And then I, again, you know, that was my, uh, 
pattern was, well, then I get away from, now I get away from therapy, from group, from everything. And I meet this girl who, um, is, loves to party. And, and I'm like, you know, I think I can do that again. You know, it's the insanity. And, but this girl, this girl was different. Like this girl actually had so much trauma in her past, unresolved, uh, never had, you know, considered herself to have a problem with alcohol, even though there'd been plenty of consequences. And I, and every red flag I saw, I just threw to the side because this is a great partnership because we're so like destructive, uh, mm-hmm. so much alcohol. And, but for me, you know, being older and having had the, you know, once you know, once you have knowledge, you can't unknow. It's like, it's always there in the, in the program. So I'm, I'm sitting there drinking with her. There's plenty of times where I'm like, this isn't right. You yeah. know, I know that this, this isn't going to end well. I know where this is going, you know, and, and I think my lack of consequences, like it, it never had anything really bad happen to me you know, except for like the you know, end of relationships. Yeah. You never had things. any big consequences. And honestly, you're a put together guy. I mean, people can look him up, um, Nate Amor, and we'll have your website and everything linked to the pod. But, you know, good looking dude. I can't imagine you. Were you ever like sloppy and a mess? Um, you're pretty no, put together. Was, that's kind of the problem, too. It's like you, you think you can get away with it more because, well, nothing bad's ever happened. You know, yeah. it's like I never slurred. I never stumbled. I never, you know, and it's like, well there were times when I mixed back in the day, the Xanax and the benzos with booze and I peed the bed, you know, people don't know that stuff, of course, but it's like, you know, I put on a I put on a great front when I was drinking, like this isn't a problem. And, and so that, that's another reason that things were easier to go back to because yeah. I didn't have that big, but you know, so anyway, I'm with her. It's toxic. It's terrible. I know this can't last. Finally, I'm like, okay, I'm going to surrender. We had just, you know, moved in together. I think things things were like serious, and we had just bought a house together. And I'm going back into the program, and she is definitely not. And so at that point, I'm going to Al-Anon even because yeah, now, is this Minneapolis? Is this Minneapolis, Minnesota? Yeah, okay. yeah, in Minnesota. Now I'm dealing with someone. Who's, I'm about to go on the road. Um, for the first time with this awesome opportunity uh, and I'm living with someone who's, I, I'm not going to say an alcoholic, but um, it's showing the same kind of behaviors I did. And so how do I live with someone like that? who's not going to stop the destructive behavior. And, and, you know, in Al-Anon, I learned a lot about, you know, just being uh, loving with detachment. And um, so I tried that. I tried that and I went on the road and, and then it was just, a, uh, it was awesome. The road, the first experiences, singing in front of 15, 18,000 people. What, what the hell is that like, dude? The first time you walk out, let's put that one thing on ice because we're going to go right back to it. But what is that like when you walk out in front of 18, 20,000 people and, and you're performing and you're center stage? Well, yeah, the beauty of it, the beauty of it is that, you know, I don't have to get into details with the ex. The ex did, you know. She ended up going back to her ex-boyfriend while I'm on the road. And Jesus. Being on the, being on the stage, um, 
the first time, the second time, you know, you do 50 shows every time. It's, it's just the same heightened experience. You're out of body. Essentially it feels like, I mean, you're, it's just amazing. Now, some people would terrify him to death, just like it would terrify me to go be a hairdresser right now. You yeah, know? yeah. So, but for me, it was, I was born to do this. So for me, it was the height of how, where I could get and, you know, get this, you know, I find out five minutes before I got to go up on stage that she's with her ex, you know, basically sleeping with the dude at that moment. And I'm just like, Jesus, I'm crushed. And I'm kind of being brought, I had some great, I've got great brothers on this, on this tour that kind of just, you know, supported me, pat on the back. We'll be here on the side of the stage. You go up, do your thing. And literally for those four minutes, I, I didn't think anything about it. It was probably the best performance I ever had, um, given what I just found out. And so that, that kind of showed me like, okay, so you're in the right place here. And now you know that you're definitely in the wrong place over there. So you know, but I made the fatal mistake of, of forgiveness, uh, which is important. You know, I do, I do forgive her now, but I, I forgave her instantly. I didn't process it. I was like, uh-huh. ah, it's because I'm away. How uh, did you find out? By the way, how did you find out? I was just a nightmare. Like, you know, we'd been checked, we'd check in every, every night and then, um, this one night I did, she didn't call me back and I'm texting. I'm like, well, what's going on? Like, um, and then like, you've got the, the home security system where you could tell if the garage doors, you know, everything's, you know, sure. Smartphones. Right. She hadn't, she hadn't been home either. And now yeah. it's midnight and I'm like, Whoa, yeah, this is, so I'm calling her friends. They don't know where she is. Finally, I get a call. I didn't sleep all night. I finally get a call from her at like nine in the morning. She sounds really strung out. And I, and I just dug into her. I was like, where, where, what happened? Where were you? Yeah. And she told me she was at his house. You know, tried to convince me nothing happened. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, oh, geez. I just, I didn't break out with her right away. And I forgave her. She came out on the road two weeks later for Christmas and I did the effort again. Yeah. I just, I was like, in order to get this girl to love me, I'm going to do what she does then. I'm going to go yeah. back to it because then she'll accept me because she liked him because he was a cocaine meth and, and addict. And it was, it was bad boy, you know, and I yeah. gotta be a bad boy ridiculous you know I i've mean, been i've been there dude yeah uh 100 uh yeah let me throw on the leather jacket smoke cigarettes and snort some coke yeah. and everybody everybody's gonna love me that's not yeah and that's I'm a freaking rock star now i'm playing arenas so yeah i'm gonna live the rock star life right it's just just totally destructive again on my history i hadn't been connected to any meetings i went to one meeting that whole tour uh, no sponsor. The sponsor I talked to one time <laughs> told me, hey, man, you have to decide how much insanity do you want to put up with? Yeah. Because it's going to cause you to drink again if you don't do it. Well, and sure enough. You know, it's like, so I get back from tour. Um, she and I dissolve. I move into a sober house in Minnesota. So at that point in time, you guys break up and you're like, I need to, I need to get, get it together. Yeah, I, I, 
you know, moved out of the house. We'll figure out the house thing later. It's COVID just started. Uh, I'm living in a sober, a house that's going to be a sober house. It's uh-huh. my buddy's from high school's house that he bought that he and his wife are turning into a, a kind of a woman's sober home. But in the meantime, I can live there as long as I want while they're fixing up and going through the house. I mean, it was amazing the way that that all worked out. Yeah. And in that house, I started writing what, what is the album that's coming out in a couple months finally. Which is? Um, which is, The album's called Keep Dreaming, and the songs are mostly all about those times in my life of great despair but sobriety. Um, and, you know, just the feelings of no one... You know, songs like Lose This Way. You know, no one wants to lose that way. And and Count on the Rain. You know, there's a song there where it's like you can count on the pain. It's going to come. But you got to learn from it and bounce back. You know, just just a lot of, like, recovery themes yeah. that meant, meant a lot to me. I wrote most of them in that sober home. And, and I felt great. And then the tour, I find out, is covid you know it's going to be canceled you know it's like ah oh, geez you know after all this uh mm-hmm. good recovery and you know I, <laughs> we're not going to do this the show we, we did a live stream and again you know i was like i'm not going to be the guy who relapses during covid for sure not um i'll do a zoom meeting well i didn't do one uh-huh. i didn't do any yeah, I don't want to do it, dude. You weren't the only one. We've talked to a, I've talked to a lot of people who not only relapsed, and some people on this podcast not only relapsed during uh, COVID, but I mean, people that were had drinking problems that were alcoholic. I mean, just fell off a cliff uh, the, during COVID, and uh, you know, luckily some of them are sober. Some of them, of course, man, Nate, they're not even with us anymore. So you don't, you're not going to meetings over COVID. You're not unique like that. And then you end up drinking one last time. Yep. And that was the last shot. And that was, that was, um, something beautiful about it was, you know, I was, I was single and then had been for nearly a year. Um, and, and so I felt, I felt pretty good in my own skin knowing what I didn't want, having come out of that. But when I started drinking again, it was like a gentleman. I had, you know, two, two glasses of wine the first time again and, um, real slow. And then I meet a girl and, um, you know, we, we start kind of drinking together and, and quickly realized it was New Year's Eve when I, of, uh, 2020 going into 2021 when, I had my last drink cause, and, and all of it was that relapse was like the most innocent because there was only one time where I, I actually felt like I got drunk. Yeah. It was, I was more in like this obsession mode, obsessed with trying to drink normally. It was almost worse than just going off the deep end. And it was, it was term, it was torment. Like I just wanted to drink 10, 15. Instead I'm doing two or three and just, Oh, like this is horrible. I want more. It's never going to work out. I and it's that, that it's that old school, right? Like belly full of alcohol, head full of AA. Just like I, it doesn't work. When I tried to do that, the the times I did, I ended up just getting obliterated uh, because I couldn't. The voices in my head, the rational voices, 
I just couldn't stand them. And, uh, you know, people out there now know who they are, they, you know, dealing with that. Uh, so, so you start, so what you're in, you're in Minnesota, you, you, your last drink is new year's, new year's Eve or, or the last run. And then what happens? What's your sobriety date? I'm actually in Vegas. It's, uh, my sobriety date is, uh, new year's Eve. Well, new year's day was the first day of non-drinking of, uh, 2021. Um, I'm in Vegas. I, I moved there to be in this relationship and she and I both looked at each other New Year's Day and, and I just told her, you know, here's my history. Here's what I know. I just, I can't ever, I can't do this. And it's like, this has been fine, you know, but I don't want to ever feel like this again. And I, <laughs> like you said, you know, just a, a head full of AA. And you don't, I you just, don't have to, right? You don't ever have to feel that way again. And you tell yourself that. Um, and then, and, and what happens? Like, what happens when you go into your first meeting? Uh, you know, what changes for you? Uh, well, what changed was like, well, I'm so grateful for that relationship. It, it was very short. But she and I saw in each other that it wasn't ever right, really. We weren't. We weren't going to go long term. We thought we were when there was drinks and whatever. Uh, we got sober together, and it's just, which is kind of this natural, like you know, what, I'm going to go back to Minnesota. I'm going to finish what I started before this relationship with you, which is let me hang out with my kids, get sober. You know, I, I go back to the old meetings. I feel a really big sense of like this is where I belong. Yeah, I, I strayed, but holy crap, I'm so grateful for that relationship. It kind of felt like, well, it didn't kind of. It it was, for me, the fact that God was putting people in my life to direct me back to where I needed to go. Because ultimately, there's a bigger plan developing that that I, he, he wants to get me to. But I have to get out of the driver's seat long enough to see it you know and just we relax and take it easy we don't struggle um that part of 86 or 88 was was ringing through my head um and so there you go there i'm there i'm back in minnesota last summer uh i'm digging in all all of a sudden a tour is going to happen again yay yeah and i'm thinking wow this time you know single no relationship just completely enjoy it and not only that i can't really go anywhere because it's we're touring again but we're not we're in quarantine on the tour you know there's things in place where you know you're not going out to dinners you're not trying to mingle you're just so it was even more of an enjoyment where i'm just loving each arena um you look at my instagram i mean i posted every show you know just in gratitude of the city i was in of the fitness I could do while I was in that city. I'm not worried about anyone at home. I'm just like in God's plan for the yeah. first time really in my life. That's when I meet Kevin S. Yeah. My uh, man. <laughs> as, as, as a bonus to all that, because I'm saying, you know, I'm not really connected with a sponsor. That's like, I've always wanted a sponsor that's in my wheelhouse as far as career and, understanding being a musician, things like that, all, all those things lined up with him and 
and and on here I am in California, you know, and you get, I get just like the gratitude. I can't explain the gratitude enough. All those past relationships, all the relapses, everything is lined up perfectly to where, um, I just, I love where I'm at. I mean, I met, I met a girl recently that actually see, it looks exactly like all of the things that I wanted without the red flags. And now we're going super slow. Uh, you know, so we're not trying to rush in anything, which is a first as well. Yeah. It's like being, being honest, being able to say, Hey, really like you. Let's see what God has in store for this. But let's not rush anything. We don't have to force our time together. I mean, we've been on three dates. We won't, we could go a week without seeing each other. It's like, wow, that's a first. It yeah. used to be just. Well, you, you learn, dude, you learn. And it's like, um, you know, the theme for me is like, if I'm doing well, I'm surrounded by other people other people in the program like and I'm not saying I'm saying really surrounded and what that looks like for me is being honest with people about where I'm at you know I can I can glad hand you all I want and talk to other alcoholics on the phone and show up at meetings and get on zoom meetings but if I'm not being honest with people um, I'm not checking in and then I can end up um, in a crazy toxic relationship or I can end up just just acting all over the place right the the old habits creep back in because i'm not accountable like it sounds to me like and i know just the way you're talking um you know you're talking to your sponsor i mean you're talking to other guys in the program i went to a meeting with you um uh you know the, the monday after the super bowl and it was like um, it was this men's group in, in hermosa it was outside it was packed and it was cool and guys knew who you were and that to me is a is Again, in my experience, that work that works f- for me. You know, when 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 I can when I share and I tell people where I'm at, and they know, right? It's like kind of like, oh, I have this group I go to. It's specific, and they, you know, they don't have to. I don't walk in there and say, oh, it's been ten days since I've been to a meeting, and I'm just glad to be here. You know, like, and look, dude, if that's what people are doing, that's awesome. You're getting to a meeting, but I know when I'm really vibing is when I people know where I'm at in my life and I'm checking in, uh, you yeah. know. And and it's it seems like that's kind of what's happening with you because you mentioned it. Um, it's funny. I I really found it interesting when you talked about the God stuff. Uh, you know, you mentioned how you could say, "Oh, I can pray by myself. I can do this alone." But then Jesus had twelve homeboys he ran with. Like the community is 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 real. You know. Yeah, I, I, it's so real. And the only time that, for me, you know, Jesus is a higher power. Um, the only time that he was alone, when it's documented, he was praying to God. He wasn't like, yeah, he wasn't documented as out there, you know, hanging with a bunch of different women and partying. You know, it's <laughs> like he, he used his alone time to connect to his higher power. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and then that's the thing, you know, we always get back to with well, the biggest, you know, there's a spiritual uh, solution for this, for this problem, whether you believe in uh, a light bulb or Jesus, whatever it is, it, that's what I love about the program is like, you don't have to get it all. I mean, I certainly don't. I'll never, I'll never judge anyone else's faith walk. I'll never, like for me, 
it's that's it for me it's it's in my bubble what i'm good with works for me on step two and three and that's great and what works for joe works for joe and that's great and we're not sitting there going well you're wrong it's like no you're wrong and we're not arguing about our it's like what we're doing is we're staying sober each day asking for god's will yeah and i mean and i still you know we're still gonna well, we read those words, you know, we, we don't struggle and, and we, you know, in 86 or 88 and, and, and we read the promises, but the truth is like, you know, even last week I, I was, I was feeling run down, some anxiety, you know, things always, uh, you know, my life is not put together in some <laughs> beautiful bowl. Neither is mine. Yeah. 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 So we're not, uh, well, I'm not blowing smoke up anyone going, yeah, I got it all figured out. Heck no. I mean, it's like you said earlier with, with that movie analogy, it's like, you know, we're never going to cross the finish line. And that's the beauty of it was just learning every day, trying to improve every day, one day at a time. And sometimes one hour at a time, because, you know, I tend to overthink and, you know, you know, try to future forecast. It's like now I always have, I have to daily reprieve has to be in, in place. Um, I always think of the water analogy. It's so simple. Like if, if I, I notice if I don't drink water today, I might feel a little bit sluggish the next day. And, you know, and it's like, you got to drink the water every day. You got to stay hydrated. Like, yeah. But water's boring. <laughs> you know, and sometimes, <laughs> uh, sometimes the meeting's boring. But yeah. You always get something out of it. It's, it's for later, you know. I'm saying. But one thing, one more thing, I want to ask you because this is an amazing part of your story, um, and this is a lot to to bite off because we got about like four or five more minutes. But you you found out, you tracked down. You mentioned you were adopted. You tracked down your your parents. Uh, you know your real friend. You didn't track them down, I guess, so much as or was brought to your attention. Um, what is that like for somebody who was adopted to discover who their parents are? and to just kind of go through all of that process, all of it. Yeah. I mean, the quick version is like, there's, there's on my heart, there were things God put on my heart with early on in life. Um, one was to, to, I want marriage and a family with a woman who was like me, ticked all the boxes. Right. And then there was, when I found out I was adopted, then there was, Okay, well, let's find out. I don't have to have a relationship with, but I'd like to know if I have other siblings, what my parents were like, what they did, because all I got was, you know, at 12 years old, I got told you're adopted. It didn't make much sense to me. I had to ask a girl in middle school later. I was like, what does that mean? And I was like, adopted. She's like, well, your parents aren't really your parents by blood. And she explained it. And I was like, whoa, it's kind of mind trip. And I think that's, you know, it wasn't long after that, that vodka came in. Yeah, I was about to ask, yeah, was there drinking behind that? I'm sure there was. Yeah, so it was kind of like, that was the start of this identity crisis where now I'm seeking to uh, understand where I came from. And, mm-hmm. and and my parents, God bless them, my mom was, you know, saying things like, you know, these messages of if you ever found out or tried to find out who your real parents were, it'd be really devastating to me and. So there was this strange like control thing about me even finding out. So I felt stuck in that. Um, 
so you know there that put a rift between my parents and I to be honest and when I went to college I moved out and I I didn't talk to them for many years and during that time I reached out to the adoption agency where I was adopted through and I got the bad news at 19 years old that hey you know you were adopted yes here's the three pieces of paper that describe without any identifying information, you know, the birth plan. And you can find out when you're 65, you know, all the names and more identifying stuff. So have a good day (laughs) and enjoy yourself. So I, I remember at that time I was, uh, you know, going to college, I was working, um, doing uh, maintenance stuff. I was up on a roof when I got the call I was fixing some shingles. And the first thing I did is I went and got a six pack and finished the work that day, you know, drinking. I just felt devastated by that news. And, um, and then I just had to come to the, I just had to resign myself to the fact that I wouldn't find out really any identifying information until I was older. And, and, you know, they do that so that the identities are protected because it's a closed adoption, which, they can't do legally anymore, but they could in 77. Yeah. Yeah. So long story short, DNA, you know, DNA uh, gets better and better and better and ancestry comes out. And, you know, I, so two years ago, you know, one thing that's beautiful about what I call, you know, the most toxic relationship I had, there's, there's some good things that come out of all that. And one of them was she really helped me to want to go try that. You know, she would suggest, uh, the ancestry thing. So I finally did a couple years ago. I, um, I got the kit. I spit in the cup. I sent it in, you know, uh, a couple weeks later, I got the results and I saw my half sister, Stacy, it was her name on the list. She looked similar to me. She was on this wow. list within, within the ancestry app. And I was like, she's got to be, you know, it said likelihood of, you know, sibling was like 50% or whatever, you know, with their stats. So I messaged her on the, uh, through Ancestry on the app and she messaged back right away. Uh, we exchanged numbers. She called me and just laid out my, my dad's side. She was from my father's side, laid everything out brilliantly, beautifully, you know, started crying saying, you know, sorry to tell you this, but you know, your dad died at 52 he was, you know, an alcoholic, cocaine addict, and I was, and it was just like, boom, this ball went off in my head, like, whoa, you know, <laughs> my parents never had a problem. Well, that's not true. My biological dad did, and that's, you know. Does that take almost, about, does that take some of the pressure off almost, or, or, or is that like a relief to know that, because it is, I mean, whether it's inherent um, or it's not, either way, it's a sickness, uh, I believe. And I would imagine that might have been sort of one part depressing, but one part liberating. It was, man. I mean, that she sent me pictures of him that night after our phone conversation. And I, I looked at them and then I looked at myself in the mirror that night and I was like, I, there's my identity. And they, it didn't have to be good. You know, in my mind, I had built up, you know, he was some successful musician or, <sighs> you know. I'd be living on a yacht singing songs with my dad, you know, these weird, like fleeting thoughts. You'd have, yeah. You, you never know. know. Yeah. You never know. Right. Uh, but it didn't matter that it was kind of the, the, 
the opposite. It was, he lived a pretty miserable life, never able to get sober, went to treatment a bunch, could not get it. And it killed him. He died in a snowbank, you know, of heart failure from too much alcohol. I mean, you know, it's like, that's where mine goes. Yeah. And I was like, God, it, it feels so terrible for him, but that's, that's what happens if I don't do this on the daily. Do you ever so, look at that as like, uh, almost like a gift from him, like that, that reality and that, that end of his life, how he died. I mean, that's something where he doesn't have to die in vain now because his son is an alcoholic in recovery. And certainly we don't want that. And obviously you don't want that faith. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing because my, the legacy can start with me and my kids now, you know, know this, you know, that, that I can, I can stop the cycle. It doesn't have to keep going. And, and so, yeah, he gave me that, you know, and, and God bless my, my biological mommy. I just met her, um, this last October for the first time took, took a bit longer. Um, but, uh, she, she had written in the, those three pieces of paper that were non-identifying that, that the father was a, a singer and that he was uh, athletic and, you know, come to find out that you know, she had, she didn't know exactly who the father was because my biological father was not a singer, was not athletic, was a drug addict and alcoholic. And yeah. so the fact that the power of words, the power at 19 years old to read that my dad was a singer and to have just come off that talent show a year before in high school, that just solidified what my identity was going to be. I'm going to be just like my dad. Well, in a way I did, I became the alcoholic, uh, who doesn't have to suffer anymore. Who's sober. Um, and also the one that didn't exist, the singer. <laughs> so yeah. It's amazing to me how that works. And, you know, on, to, to end that whole thing, you know, so I, I met the, I've met, uh, two of my four siblings on, on my dad's side. I still have to meet, Stacy and Ashley, my sisters, but I met my two brothers, half brothers. And then on my mom's side, I had, I had three brothers and just last week, one of them, um, died and I only met him twice. His name was ironically Nate as well. Um, and he suffered from this disease and didn't get out of it and mm. depression and anxiety took him to the gates of hell and uh, he ended his own life. And I, I, I got that call last week and I think, I think that's, you know, when I talked about last week, I started feeling a little bit. Uh, yeah. I was about to say, yeah, that's maybe one of the reasons. Yeah. I mean, it just kind of took some of the wind out of my sails because I was like, yeah, I really on, on tour this last year, I, I was connecting a little bit with, with, my other two brothers, but I didn't, I didn't reach out to Nate and he was very isolated and all the triggers, all the warning signs, someone that's you know, deep into an addiction. And I saw him drink when we met the first time. And I was like, that's how I used to do yeah, it. Yeah. Like somebody um, who's in pain, right? Yeah. And you know, making, he made a couple comments like, yeah, I probably drink too much. So, you know, things like that. I just, I really, um, you know, it, the lesson is like, okay, I'm in the right place. I know that. Yeah. Um, I need to stay sober because that's where it goes again. Like my dad, 
now here's a brother on the other side, uh, on the mom's side, who's just ended his life because of the pain. Um, and I'm not sure that that they're they're framing it that way. I yeah. think they're framing it more with he struggled with anxiety and depression. But uh, you know, in my experience and what I've I, well, you're you seeing know, things clearly, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that, and that's what happens when we're, you know, when I, for me, when I'm out there, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm, I can have that guy, like your brother, um, in front of me making those comments and drinking, and it's not a guy who's drinking like pain. It's a guy who's drinking or drinking the pain. He's drinking with me, and I don't hear those comments because ah, it's the same as me, you know. Ah, shit, what are we gonna do? five o'clock somewhere, you know, it's like, and it's, it's so much different when, when we're sober. Um, cause we can see this stuff uh, for what it is. All right, Nate, where could I've, I've kept you all day now. It's been 90 minutes. I know you gotta, you gotta make some money here. Um, because you know, you're off tour with the, with the TSB, uh, TSO. Why do I say TSB? Yeah, baby. Um, Hey, I like that one too. Where, where can people find your music? Again, we're going to link all this to it. Um, but where can people find your music? I know you got a website, um, and you know, Instagram and all that stuff. Well, real quick, you know, the, the old artist name was Nathan Anderson. My birth name was Anderson with my adopted family. Right. So a couple years ago when I joined Trans-Siberian, there was this piece of paper that said, you know, legal name. And then do you have a stage name? And I was like, Oh man, now's the time. Like, <laughs> I never, I never liked Anderson. It, yeah, it's a very Scandinavian Minnesota name. I mean, I love my parents, you know, that raised me, but I just, the name for a, a performer, it just wasn't quite, you know, so I, I thought, you know, what, what do I love? I love love. I mean, I wrote a song called love, love for my daughter, which is coming out soon. Um, but I, um, so I changed it to Nada Moore right then and there. I, it just kind of, I don't know why it just clicked. What's the universal word I'm for? instead of Nate Love. Anyway, um, so natamore.com, it's just A-M-O-R, will have all the, the things on it. The first singles, there's really nothing out right now. I mean, the first singles get released um, What's the song? April, What's the May. song on your webpage when I, when I pull it up? There's a song there. Oh, that was, uh, that's an acoustic version of one that's coming out um, on this album called Gone, and that's about my mom's death. Um my adopted mom that passed so so that's that's uh that's coming out but it's not done as well you know as what's actually coming which, yeah all right we'll know. wait on it just you, you you between you and my brother i can't get either of you to put out a goddamn album everybody's everybody's in the studio polishing uh, that shit up you know <laughs> I, it, this has been so long dude i yeah. i had to get i signed a lay uh to an indie label that had to get formed and and created in Minnesota with a uh, good buddy, Jason. And then I had to find the other management and other, all these things have to come into place to do it right. Yeah. Cause you can, you can have a great piece of art and if you just hang it in your closet, you're the only one that sees it. Well, and I mean, so that's and, how my music and I'm breaking your balls, but it's like with you and my brother, there's two common themes experience in, in this business uh, over time. And I know that he has learned because the stuff that, I listen to, um, of Kevin's is like the best I've ever heard. I mean, it's like, and, and in my opinion, like head and shoulders above other stuff. So I'm just like, I'm, 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 I'm really excited to, to, for other people to hear, hear the whole thing as I am with yours. All right. So Nada Moore, 
com, right? Yep, and that'll be it. Hey, dude, Nate, I, I I can't tell you how much fun this is. I'm sorry I kept you so long, but it was it's uh, you're an easy guy to talk to, and you're a uh, you're a great dude, man. Well, hey, we'll edit it down to an hour. Um, no, I got to keep it up. I got to keep it in post right now. We'll, we're going to leave it all in there, Nate. You're my man. This will probably be up like uh, either tomorrow or Friday, and I'll shoot it over to you. Oh, wow. You're fast. I love it, man. Yeah, I really appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> you're the man, dude. I appreciate it, Nate. Thank you so much. Ta- say hi to Kevin S. and Patty for me, all right? All uh, right. I will say hi to uh, Mike there with you in the studio. You got it, brother. See ya. All right. See you, brother. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast.